I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Georgia this week. The Peach State. The Peach State. Even though you told me that uh, they're not responsible for the most peaches. They are not. But they are the country's top producer of pecans or pecans, depending how you uh, like to say it. Where you are, yeah. Peanuts and Vidalia onions. Oh, right. I do like Vidalia onions. I feel like Vidalias, like Vidalias and Bermuda onions are like two of the sweetest onions in the world. Like the best they to caramelize. Probably are, yeah. My favorite for just like if I just want like raw onion on something is red onion. Oh, always. Those are like yeah. the best when they're raw. Yeah, I love raw red onion. I love sweet onions. Uh, let's see. What else do I know about Georgia? Oh, speaking of uh, peanuts, Georgia used to be home to the world's largest peanut. It was a fake one. Huh. It was in Ashburn, Georgia, and it was this giant peanut that sat on top of a gold crown that was like number one in peanuts, as in proclaiming Georgia the number one peanut producing state. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. The world's largest drive-in restaurant can be found in Atlanta. Nice. It's very It's called nice. the Varsity. Okay. I want to go there. It's over two acres and it can fit 600 vehicles. Nice. Let's see. And of course, this is always fun. Georgia, when it was founded in 1732 by James or Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe, yeah. It was a penal colony. Yep. So the colony was used to house prisoners who couldn't pay off debts. And uh, Oglethorpe thought that if you brought debtors back into cities without any kind of form of support, uh, it would be a detriment to those people. So he wanted to take debtors and give them a second chance in a new place, a.k.a. the Georgia colony. Very interesting. So you know how places let the drop weird things? Mm-hmm. Like in our in one of our hometowns, they drop a giant peep yeah. to mark New Year's. Well, in Tallapoosa, Georgia, every year... They drop a taxidermy opossum to celebrate New Year's. To celebrate Norman Bates. <laughs> <laughs> They've done it every year since the early 2000s. A stuffed opossum named Spencer is lowered from one of the city's oldest buildings with a Christmas light covered ball at midnight. That's kind of cool. They call it the possum drop. And it's routed out by fireworks, live music, and they crown someone the possum king and queen. Wow. That's kind of awesome. Such a high honor. <laughs> Georgia also actually has a state possum. His name is Pogo, and you can watch his antics in an animated cartoon. I mean, we have a groundhog, so yeah, I guess. can't really say much. <laughs> I'm not going to knock your love of any kind of ground mammal. Well, the possums are quite strange. Oh, Marsupials in general are just weird to me. Yeah, a little bit of the prehistoric beast hangover. Yeah, and ooh, have you ever actually seen like a pouch of like a kangaroo or something? Mm-hmm. They're disgusting. Mm-hmm. You always think, oh, it's like a cute little pocket. It's not a freaking pocket, guys. It is not a pocket. Um, What else? Fun facts about Georgia. Oh, if you're a funeral director in Georgia, you better watch your mouth. Really? Funeral directors can lose their licenses if they use obscene language in the company of a corpse. Fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) So when I think shrimp, I think coastline, right? Yeah. Well, in Georgia... On top of Stone Mountain, which is almost 1,700 feet above sea level, they have live shrimp. Uh, there's a depression in the stone on top of the mountain that gathers rainwater, and it provides a natural habitat for freshwater shrimp. Huh. Okay. So, cool. Inland shrimp, I guess. Freshwater shrimp. Freshwater shrimp. I didn't know there were freshwater shrimp. And there's a whole island inhabited by wild horses. It's called Cumberland Island. Oh, I've heard of it. 
More wild horses. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I dig it. Because we already have acetique. So, I mean, that's not yeah. in Georgia, but you know what I mean. It's all like that same kind of like coastal sea island yeah. kind of deal. Cool, cool. Let's see. What else is fun fact about Georgia? There's a tree in Athens, Georgia that owns itself and the eight foot radius of land around it. How the hell does it own itself? Well, Professor William. I am my own tree. So Athens, of course, is the university town. Yeah. University of Georgia is there. Uh, Professor William Jackson deeded the tree and the land to the tree itself in the early 19th century. Uh, the tree blew down in the 1940s and was replaced with a new tree from the original's acorn. So it's a son of a, the original tree or daughter. Son of a tree. Son of a tree. And it inherited the land directly around it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Georgia, horses, peanuts, trees, possums, freshwater shrimp. Yep. That's Georgia in a nutshell, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's all I really had for fun facts. Um, I feel that a lot of my exploration of Georgia is more of a visual exploration. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful state. It is. But in terms of documenting or doc documentation, a little, little tough, a little tough. See, it's funny because like Georgia is another one of those mostly drive through states for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the only thing I've really done in Georgia is stop at a Shoney's and eat there. But Shoney's. Yeah, does Shoney's even exist anymore? Hell I know. Yeah, they do. I know they don't around here anymore, but no, but they're all they're all like down south. Down south, they're still big. Okay, I uh, I have not been to Georgia other than to drive through it. Yeah. Um. However, I do have some friends who like live in Atlanta. Uh, a couple good friends who live in Savannah, and I've always meant to get down there and visit, but hasn't haven't quite found the time. Yeah. Maybe this road trip. Who knows? See, since I have relatives that live in Florida and stuff. When we used to drive down to Florida to visit them, we would always eat at Shoney's. It I would that's a, lo a lot of Shoney's. people did that. Like Shoney's is a, is a good place to stop on your road trip into Florida. And then they made one around here. I forget where, but they made one around here. I do kind of remember that. And it just kind of sucked. Like it wasn't the same and it closed down pretty quickly. That's kind of like Waffle Houses. Yeah. They're like, better in the South. They're better in the South. Yeah. True story. Weird. Speaking of true stories. I do have a true story. Excellent. My story this week takes place in Ringgold, Georgia. Ringgold. Yes. Hmm. Ringgold is right at the tippy top of the state and is pretty much in the middle of Catoosa County. And it's near the Blue Ridge Mountains. Okay. So it's still kind of App Appalachian yeah. part of Georgia. It's not a very big town by any means, and around the time of the story that I'll be telling, it had less than 1,000 people. Wow, that's tiny. Yeah. Today, it has about 3,500 people. Still tiny. Still tiny. Their downtown area only has three traffic lights. So a true measure of how tiny a town is. Yeah. <laughs> it's named for a hero of the Battle of Palo Alto, which was a battle in the Mexican-American War. His name was Samuel Ringgold. Ringgold has some weird weather-related incidents that, has ha that have happened there. In 2002, there was a really heavy fog that rolled in and made driving conditions terrible and caused 125 cars to crash on I-75 North. Oh, my God. Four people died, and it went down in history as one of the worst pileups. That's crazy because you hear about like those massive pileups, but it's always during snowstorms yes. where it's like people can't, I guess it's the same thing. People can't see. And it's like, I've been in really dense fog yeah. before and you cannot see. Well, plus if it's like a highway and you have like larger like trucks and stuff, it's yeah. like they, if they can't stop, they, they can't, can't stop. They can't stop in time. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. 
Um, that's not the end of their weird weather-related issues, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, in 2011, a tornado touched down in the county and ended up killing 20 people, which included an entire family. That's sad. Although I'm sure this town isn't all doom and gloom, we are going to concentrate on that today, seeing as <laughs> that's why you're probably here. This is the story of Virginia Ridley. I've not heard of that name before. You might know it um, when we get into it. It happened in 97. So Okay, so within my lifetime of memory. Yeah. Virginia Ridley was born April 18th, 1948. She was married to a man named Alvin Ridley in 1966 at the age of 18. And yes, I'm sure Simon and Theodore attended their wedding. <clears throat> Alvin was pretty well known around town. He once owned the only TV repair shop in town. And people tended not to like him very much. Alvin! Yeah. <laughs> he was a big conspiracy theory nut, and he would also sue people for just about anything under the sun. Wow. Yeah. I can see why people might not have liked him. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, he actually got countersued once after a minor car accident when he tried to sue, and then he lost. <laughs> so he had to give up his van as payment, and after that, he eventually ended up losing his business as well. One of my sources referred to him as the town's Boo Radley, which was interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the people in town just referred to him as Crazy Alvin. Boo Radley. Is that, isn't that from like um, To Kill a Mockingbird? Yes. Isn't that the guy who's on trial? The, no. Boo Radley was the one who, um, he was the one that was kind of like, everyone like didn't really like him. Everyone was kind of afraid of him. Oh yeah. The bully guy. And then he ended up like being a nice guy at the end, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, whatever. Boo Radley. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, so, you were saying everyone in town. Yeah. So they all just called him Crazy Alvin. Uh, so that paints a pretty decent picture of him in your head. I really couldn't find a lot of information on Virginia, but I do know that when she married Alvin, her family objected to their union. They just didn't like Alvin and didn't think that she was making the right decision. Was Do you know if he was like a little bit older than her or the same he age? He was about six years older than her, I think. Okay. Or four years, somewhere That's four to six years. Not too bad. Anything. After they were married, Virginia seemed to cut off all ties with friends and family, and no one really saw her leave the house ever. Her family says they tried to contact her, but she just wouldn't reply and wouldn't come to the door. Weird. Alvin says that the reason for this is twofold. He says that Virginia's parents were very controlling and a negative influence, and that's why they cut them off. And also the reason Virginia never left the house was because she suffered from epilepsy and was afraid of having a seizure in public. I can see being a shut-in with epilepsy back 100 years or more ago, but today it just sounds a little weird, you know? Whatever floats your boat, though. Yeah, I mean... Anyway... Her family even tried making Alvin and Virginia go to court on a few occasions. Apparently, they would file papers saying that she was missing or being held by Alvin against her will, uh, something her sister seems to believe to this day. And they'd have to show up in court, and Virginia would tell whoever, you know, that she was happily married to Alvin and that there, she was there of her own volition. Okay. So, weird. Yeah. Her parents really didn't like Alvin. I know. This is already kind of weird, weird. Interesting. Yeah. It's a different kind of story than I normally tell, but you'll see. Okay. I honestly don't know how happily married they truly were since no one can account for seeing Virginia for 30 years after her marriage and up until her death in 1997. 
Yeah. No one saw her in 30 freaking years. Except in court, right? Except in court. Yeah. Weird. That's how rumors about being a town witch get started. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the conditions in the ha- in the house were reported to be filthy as well. And they seem to have a cockroach problem, like a major cockroach problem and ants and all that. From what I saw of the house, the front door was falling apart and the yard looked a little Sanford and Son. Mm. So uh, they also said that there was no running water in the house. Oh, no. How do you live? Mm-mm. How do you freaking live? Mm-mm. And it's not like they had like a well out back either. It was just there was no freaking running water anywhere. <sighs> it's like a hovel. Yeah. So like I said, she hadn't been seen in 30 years. And then on the morning of October 4th, 1997, Virginia was found dead in her bed by Alvin. She was fully dressed at the time, too. Okay. Yeah. When help arrived on the scene, it would seem that she had been dead for around eight hours since rigor mortis had already set in. They didn't have a phone in their house either. So Alvin drove to a payphone by a fire department and called a hospital, but not the closest one. I actually listened to the call on uh, you know, the call to the hospital. And he really just didn't sound like there was any urgency in his voice at all. Uh, that's not really the way a normal person reacts to any death, let alone the death of your wife for, for 30 years. Yeah. That's so, a little suspicious. Yeah. A little weird. Once news of his wife's death got out, everyone was shocked for a variety of reasons. Her family had assumed since they hadn't seen or heard from her in 30 years that she was probably already dead. Oh, my God. Uh, While the people around town were shocked to find that Alvin even had a wife. What? Yeah, like someone married him. Okay. We didn't know that. He's not a crazy old man living by himself in that weird shack. Exactly. Oh, man. Some people even speculated that the woman they found wasn't even his wife, but just some woman he abducted and kept in his house for years. These townspeople are really kind of cruel. Uh, yeah, I guess it is like the like the small town rumor mill working overtime. Oh, yeah. When her one sister, Trixie LaCroix. What? Yeah. Trixie LaCroix? I know. What a name. Oh, my. I have a new favorite character name. <laughs> I hey. know, right? I, I love that drag queen. She's so good. Right. So Trixie LaCroix was asked to identify the body. Uh, she said that she just couldn't do it. So their other sister was able to identify her. Bambi. I don't know what the other sister's <laughs> name is, but Trixie LaCroix sounds like a, a dirty, dirty name. <laughs> she sounds like a 1950s like sex kitten, you know? Yes, very much so. Uh, what her sister had to tell her after this was very shocking. Okay. And not sexy. Okay. Take, take me back take me back <laughs> down to earth, Eden. Exactly. Now with thoughts of Trixie LaCroix running through your head, <laughs> even though she's not like the hot woman that you think she is. She's pretty enough, but she's not like this... Crazy va va voom, you know, kind of girl. Anyway, she said that she was glad that Trixie didn't have to go in and see her because it looked like her hair hadn't been combed in like forever and it was just nothing but knots, and that she probably didn't even weigh 90 pounds and was, quote, skin stretched across bone. Oh. Yeah, so she really didn't look good. This was obviously big news around town. Mm-hmm. Not only was Alvin's name on everybody's lips for years as that weird reclusive guy, but this was also a very small town, and you know how fast gossip travels with only 750 residents at the time. Mm-hmm. People kind of speculated on what happened since it, was, it just all went down in such a weird way. The payphone that Alvin used was one outside of town, 
he did pass a fire station where he could have gotten help, but didn't. There was a hospital 10 minutes away, but he chose to call one in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for some reason. What? Yeah, it's about 30 miles away. Weird. Yeah. It just really got people thinking. Yeah. On a funny note, I realized I like to play detective. (laughs) Just now? You realized this? (laughs) I could have told you that. Right, I know. I I watched a Forensic Files episode for this because I couldn't find a lot of information online, so I wanted to flesh it out a little more. And when they showed her body, I was like, hmm, well, there's a bruise right there. Hmm, wonder what that could be from. And then when they were talking about her autopsy and mentioned petechial hemorrhaging, I was like, oh, strangulation. Mm, Yeah. Petechial hemorrhaging. I might have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you've watched too many SVU, it's fine. And read enough books and done all this (laughs) stuff. So anyway. You just got the true crime mind. It's fine. I know, right? So I'm going to repeat myself now. The first autopsy was performed by the local coroner, and she found petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes. After this, they ordered a full autopsy and brought in the medical examiner. If you don't know much about autopsies, they usually don't go into great detail with them unless they suspect foul play. So if you suspect foul play, they'll do a more in-depth one. And look over everything. And that's normally when the medical examiner comes in. Sometimes right. the medical examiner does the first one too. It just depends on the town. Yeah. And it also depends. Like you can request a full autopsy as well. True. So. Yeah. So when they did the second autopsy, they found bruising around her neck. Any idea what neck bruising plus petechial hemorrhaging means, Nicole? Death by strangulation. Strangulation. Correct. Obviously, at this point, it was ruled a homicide. And the people in town were pretty much like, yep, crazy Alvin. I knew he would snap one day. Exactly. Some people in town, the ones that actually knew he was married in the first place, that is, thought that he had killed her a long time ago. And after this news, some of them still thought that, that he was just keeping this dead body around for forever. Is it like Roses for Emily Faulkner story? I guess. Where it's like like the woman's been dead for years and they just keep sprinkling lie around the house. Yeah, weird. Ugh. Like... People were actually thinking that, like, this is how crazy the rumor mill works in this town. (laughs) The police began to check around and they looked for her medical history and checked between 50 to 100 mile radius and found nothing. But she had epilepsy. Yes. According to Alvin. Yes. But she hadn't been to a doctor or a hospital, nor has she been to a pharmacy for medication in 30 years. Now, here's this guy with a reputation around town for being a little weird, not very friendly, seen by some as a con man, and now he is the sole suspect in a murder investigation. Obviously, he needs to get himself a lawyer because this was definitely going to trial. So, that he does. And not just any lawyer, mind you. Was it a Georgia Backwoods lawyer? Because I know how that song goes, and that's not going to end up well for Alvin. (laughs) No, but it is a lawyer with one weird-ass name. Probably a family name, I'm assuming. McCracken Poston. McCracken Poston. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. First, we have Trixie Attorney LaCroix. Law. Now we have Kraken McPoston. McCracken Poston. McCracken Poston. <laughs> McCracken Poston. Oh, man. I, I Yeah. Continue, please. Yeah. I'm, I These names are great. Um. Anyway. So, McCracken Poston, who I am told goes by Ken... That's just what I'm going to call him because it's easier. Good for him. Then I didn't have to type out McCracken all the time. That's totally a family name. It has to be. 
Um, so anyway, Ken goes over to Alvin's house, something that he had tried to do before, and Alvin would not just let him inside at all. Uh, so when he goes inside, he sees, well, obviously he sees that it's a complete sty. Mm-hmm. But besides that, he sees that there are all these notes taped to the walls, some of which were ones written by Alvin to Congress about various crazy Alvin stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he also sees some more notes that were written by Virginia. Uh, by the way, the only way that he was able to get in this house was because he went to Alvin's house and brought him Thanksgiving leftovers. And that's how Alvin let him in the house. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you brought me food. Okay, fine. That changes everything. Come in. Come on in. <laughs> yeah. So I think we've talked about this before, Nicole, but um, with like crosses and stuff hanging copious amounts around a room and how I just think serial killer when I see that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the same, I get the same feeling from seeing all these notes just hanging on the wall. <laughs> uh, I guess I just don't like weird obsessive compulsive stuff. Maybe. I don't know. Or your obsessive compulsiveness requires clean lines and surfaces. Maybe, you know, I, it could be true. It's the, it's that true crime mind. <laughs> so they said that there were actually like hundreds of notes written by Virginia. So I'm wondering how many uh, notes that were written by Alvin then too. Mm-hmm. And what did these walls look like? You know, uh, these notes were a little strange because uh, the relevance of these notes for the case is that there were a lot of love letters. That Virginia had written to Alvin, which can kind of work toward the character of the relationship and show that she did love him and wasn't being held against her will, like so many believed. But there were also transcribed Bible verses, which just, ugh. That again goes back to the the weird shit hanging on the wall. <laughs> um, it just freaks me out a bit. If I ever prank you. <laughs> <laughs> And see, I think the reason they have this like weird aversion to the copious amounts of religious iconography is possibly because I worked in mental health and a lot of the people who had schizophrenia and stuff like that were obsessively religious like that mm-hmm. and would do things like that. So I think that's why it creeps me out and makes me a little uneasy. Fair enough. Yeah. Any hooters. They examine and check the notes against her signature on other documents, and a handwriting analyst was able to say that the letters were indeed written by Virginia. Interesting twist. Yes. So it's they're not fake. Alvin wasn't like, here, make her love me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually Virginia. The other thing they were able to take away from her notes was that she had stopped taking medication for her epilepsy decades ago and instead went the Christian scientist route and was trying to pray the disease away. Hence all the other religious Bible verses, probably. Exactly, yes. Uh, There's also a doctor named Dr. Wanamaker who stated that her petechial hemorrhages could have come from her epilepsy and not strangulation. He said that it happens when epileptics stop taking medication and from something called sudden death epilepsy. Interesting. I've never heard of that. Which is what he said killed her. Oh. Yeah, apparently it's just like a really violent seizure seizure that, yeah, just takes you immediately. Um, Terrifying. Yeah. When they finally go to court, they had all of this evidence to support the theory that Alvin did not kill his wife, but still nothing about the huge fucking bruises on her neck. They ended up finding out that the coroner who did the initial autopsy, drew blood for a tox screen from her neck, which is not standard procedure at all. 
and the needle was responsible for the bruises. Yeah, that's so weird. Why would you? Why the neck? I don't know. Weird. Uh, they made it seem in the court that Vanita, the coroner, wasn't very good at her job since coroners are an elected position in the state of Georgia and also that uh, that she had a personal dislike of Alvin Ridley from childhood, which seemed to be the theme of this town, so who knows. Hmm. Ken actually testified in his version of the Twinkie defense. If you consider Virginia's death a homicide, then you'd have to say Florence Griffith Joyner was brutally murdered too. Yeah, a little weird. Flojo? Flojo. Mm-hmm. Was murdered. I'm Beca- so confused. Here, okay, I'll explain. So, the Twinkie defense was used by George Moscone, I believe his last name is, uh, during Dan White's trial for the assassination of Harvey Milk. Okay. And was meant to explain diminished capacity from eating too many Twinkies and be- becoming depressed because of it. Okay. Yeah, it's a term basically used to describe a ridiculous defense in court. Okay. Because that sounds dumb. Uh, he was depressed from eating too many Twinkies. That's why he killed someone. Really? How's that going to freaking hold up, dude? That's the best you got, then <laughs> I'm sorry, but no. And Florence Griffith Joyner, or Flojo, as she is sometimes called. Thank you, Nicole. I only know that from Baby Got Back. It's fine. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that line. Uh, she was an Olympic track and field athlete who died in her sleep from a seizure. So that's why he's saying that. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember learning about her like after she died like in school. They're talking about epilepsy and her. So during trial, when asked why he didn't stop at the fire station, he told them that he had bad experiences with the people at the fire station before and didn't trust them, which is very on brand for Alvin. He also said that he was more familiar with the hospital in Chattanooga than any other, which is why he called them instead, because he had taken his mother there, apparently. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense for like a, like a you know, conspiracy crackpot kind of person. Yeah, but it's also an emergency and you want people to get there as fast as they can. At that yeah. point, I'm not really caring. But if you're like also like, you know, clearly not the most mentally healthy person. Yes. Then I feel like you would still fall into like those atypical routines. That's true, I guess. So in the end, the jury ended up finding Alvin not guilty of murdering his wife, and Virginia's death is now labeled as due to natural causes. Since the trial, Alvin still lives in Ringgold in the same dilapidated house, as far as I know, and still doesn't really talk to many people and hopes one day to start his TV repair business again. One interesting thing I found out regarding all the notes scribbled everywhere... Mm -hmm was that rarely epileptics can develop something known as hypergraphia, which causes them to write like crazy. Huh. It's weird and rare, but it does happen. Hypergraphia. Yeah. So they just feel a compulsive compulsive. need to write. Hmm. Very weird. Now, I'm sure everyone has their own opinions on what actually happened here. And while I don't know if Alvin killed his wife or not, I do think there were some serious issues that needed to be addressed. Although I don't think that Alvin is completely well mentally. He obviously had a bit more going on. He had a bit more together than Virginia did. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, her hair hadn't been combed in forever. They were living in filth. She wasn't taking her medication for a serious disease that doesn't have to be quite so serious with proper treatment. And I really feel 
that she had a lot of undiagnosed mental disorders, including agoraphobia and possibly dependent personality disorder. Uh, I feel that if Alvin didn't kill her, he still should have taken better care of her. She weighed less than 90 pounds, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. It was just a strange story that I really wanted to tell. And I felt that it was a little different than what we normally do. Uh, I remember it from the 90s and really wanted to cover it, even though my sources turned out to be quite limited on this one. No, I'm glad you did. It's very interesting. Yeah. Like, I I, I agree with you. It's interesting that you think about, you know, something that's very treatable like epilepsy. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a perfect storm of like two people who are damaged and, yes. you know, perhaps that's why they like, like clung to each other and, and, you know, found hopefully some happiness in those 30 hopefully, years yeah. they trapped in that terrible house. But yeah, it is one of those things where you wonder what could have been with some kind of intervention. Exactly. Like even if he didn't kill her, mm-hmm. it, I think he still contributed to it. There was also something that I didn't put in the notes, but I'll tell everyone now. Apparently, the night that it happened, he said that his wife had a pretty bad seizure the night before he found her. Mm -hmm. And then he was like, are you going to be okay?" And she's like, yes, honey, I love you. I'll be fine. And then the next morning he found her dead. Mm. So, I mean, that sounds a little suspicious to me. But at the same time, it could happen. It does. But like talking to other people I know who've like, you know, lost partners, spouses, it is one of those like little details. Like if she hadn't died, it you know would be just another day for them. Yeah. But I think maybe it stuck out for him and resonated because it was like you know probably the last conversation they had. Yeah. I also think they're probably at a detriment because they live in a very tiny small town. Oh yeah. So how would they even get you know resources that would help them? That's true. But see, I'm just I'm always gonna fight for mental health. Because I have experience with my own personal mental health and then also from working in mental health. Mm -hmm. So I really hate to see a situation like this where both of them really could have used support and could have, you know, probably lived better lives than they lived if they had gotten help. Yeah, it's a different type of sadness than we usually encounter on this show. It is. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So who knows what really happened? What do you think happened? Do you think he did it? I don't think he did it. Yeah. I think it was just an unfortunate situation. Yeah. A long time in the making. I mean, who's to say? I mean, she was what? Probably in like her 50s. Almost 50. Yeah. So whether she was, you know, in her 50s or in her 70s, it still would have been the same sort of rapid decline, I think. True. Yeah. So it's it's all how you like slice the bagel, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what that means. I like that phrase though. (laughs) And now I want a bagel. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, before I do my sources, I do have a surprise for you, Nicole. I love surprises. And since we can't play it on here because of copyright being a bitch, uh, I wanted you to know that there's a murder ballad about this song by a guy named Mark Barker, and it's called The Ballad of Alvin Ridley. Really? Yes. So I haven't listened to it yet either, so I'm sure we're going to have an interesting break. I'm going to check and see if it's on Spotify because I will add that to the murder ballad playlist, guys. Do it, yeah. My sources for this week were Wikipedia, Hubpages.com, Reddit, NewsChannel9.com, a Forensic Files episode titled Killigraphy, and the Washington Post. I guess that's it. We're going to take a little break right now and listen to some murder ballads. And I think by the expression that Nicole made that she found the song on Spotify. I did. And I've already added it to the playlist. Nice. (laughs) I'm very 
effective and efficient. You really are. Everybody needs Nicole in their life. But I'm just one person. That's too much stress. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. We'll be back after the break. And we are back. We're back. I don't know why I always feel compelled to say that. You're just like, we're back. (laughs) Not that, dude. We're back. No, but you're just kind of like Eeyore. Like, you know. Oh, my God. I'm really depressed that we're back. I'll have to show you the video of my my one niece who's like not talking yet. She's still like a little baby. Yeah. But she's starting to verbalize. And my uh, sister-in-law posted this hilarious video. And it sounds like she's having a conversation with Venom. Because you just hear the, the like this little girl going, I I'm like, what? I love this kiddo. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway. So you have a story for us. I do have a story. And I am going to say, I think you'll appreciate it because I covered something that is similar to something you covered many, many states ago. Oh, okay. So I think you'll also enjoy that aspect. That's right. I remember you mentioning that to me before we started recording. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm still just as curious as I was then. All right, then. I'll get into it. Our stop today is 14 miles east of Savannah, Georgia, which is Georgia's oldest city. Mm -hmm. At the mouth of the Savannah River, which runs along the border of Georgia and South Carolina, sits a small island named Cockspur Island. Uh (laughs) I kind of knew you were going to laugh about that. Yeah, I had to. Also known as Long Island or Pepper Island during the colonial era, today Cockspur is now a national park that preserves our stop for today. Welcome to Fort Pulaski. Fort Pulaski. Why does that sound familiar? Uh, as I said before, Eden, when I came across Fort Pulaski, I immediately thought about your story for Fort Delaware. Okay. And Peapatch Island, which was another island name that also made me giggle. Yes. So how could I resist covering Fort Pulaski on Cockspur Island? Nice. Anyway, the island's strategic location at the mouth of the Savannah River has always made it an important part of protecting Savannah and its busy port. During the colonial era... The first fort, named Fort George, probably in honor of King George III, was built on the island in 1761. It was a relatively simple structure made of earth mounds and log walls. It was primarily used to protect the entrance of Savannah by ensuring that vessels wanting to access Savannah's port would first stop at quarantine and customs checkpoints on nearby Tybee Island. Huh. So Tybee Island is another island at the mouth of the savannah river it's about i think uh it was like three or four miles away from cockspur island okay it's a little bit larger and there are you know communities there and that's where the customs checkpoint was in the colonial era for savannah. okay when the revolutionary war started colonists quickly captured and dismantled fort george really in the hopes of destabilizing britain's control of savannah However, British forces managed to recapture the island and set it up as a camp for loyalists who were fleeing the city. Cockspur even became the capital of the Georgia colony for a short while when Sir James Wright, the royal governor, fled to the island for safety. Huh. Interesting. Now, after the revolution, the U.S. Army built a new fort where Fort George had stood. This new fort, called Fort Green, after Revolutionary War hero General Nathaniel Green Mm -hmm. was also constructed from the same technology of earth mounds and log walls. Turns out that earth and logs do not make a very strong fort, though, especially when the island logs do not a fort make do not a fort make, especially when that island is exposed to the weather conditions along the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) probably not the best idea. So it was no great surprise when, in September of 1804, a hurricane swept through and completely obliterated Fort Greene. Nice. 
When the War of 1812 revealed how vulnerable America's coastlines were to attack, President James Madison ordered a new system of fortification to protect the country's coastline from invasion by sea. This new system of forts would run down the Atlantic coast from Maine to Florida, then wrap around the Gulf Coast to New Orleans. Actually, Fort Delaware was part of this, quote, third system oh, of wow. fortifications. Okay. So they're kind of like sisters. They are. Haunted, haunted sisters. Haunted sisters. Cockspur Island, of course, was selected as one of the build sites, and it was dubbed Fort Pulaski after the Revolutionary War hero Casimir Pulaski. I feel like a lot of things are named after Pulaski. Yeah, I think so, too. Just like the other one that you mentioned before that, Green. Yeah, Green with an E. Yeah. yeah. That is a name that I've heard before, too, that I remember from either history class or something I looked up on my own. I don't know. Fun fact. General Nathaniel Green was a successful general in the Southern Theater during the American Revolution. He's actually buried in Savannah. Oh, wow. Okay. Fun fact. Savannah is very, very historical and very, Mm -hmm. you know, very haunted, too, from what I hear. So the initial construction of Fort Pulaski began in 1827 under the supervision of a recent West Point graduate, someone we've heard of before. Okay. At that time, he was a lieutenant named Robert E. Lee. Oh, okay. Yeah, we know who that is. <laughs> now, before Lee left the project, he did complete the first crucial foundation steps of designing and constructing a series of canals and earthen dikes to drain excessive water from the island. So he basically laid the foundation. Okay. Years later, during the Civil War, Lee would return to Cockspur Island as a general in command of the Confederate Army, and he would inspect the fort. He noted that the drainage system was a success and that the only area free of mud was the area inside of the drainage dikes that he had helped design. Well, boo for him, I guess. Uh, Good on ya. Yeah. When Lee was reassigned in 1831, Lieutenant James K. Mansfield took charge of the construction, and this is when things really took off. Despite the drainage, the land still couldn't support the weight of a brick fort. So very similar to Peapatch Island. Yeah. I'm noticing a lot of parallels with mm -hmm. just islands being muddy and terrible for um, any sort of... Heavy structure. Yeah. (laughs) And just like at Peapatch Island, they used 70-foot wood pilings deep in the muddy soil of the island to support a double-layered wooden subfloor, which then in turn supported the brick foundation. Okay. It's a lot of extra steps to get to where you want to go. Like you want to lay bricks? Just kidding. Yeah. It's just, it's very par for the course, apparently. Now, unlike Peapatch Island, Cockspur Island is in the super humid climate of the South. So construction had to stop, especially in the summer months, since it was so humid and there were terrible, terrible mosquitoes that would plague construction workers. Oh, great. Yeah. So they would halt it multiple times, and this led to it taking about 18 years to finish Fort Pulaski. Holy shit. Okay. So the fort was finally opened in 1847. When it was completed, it was essentially a two-tiered structure in the shape of a truncated hexagonal fort with a demi-loom, a moat, two powder magazines, and a parade ground at the center of the fort. The parade ground, to give you an idea of how big the fort is, is about the size of a football field. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty big. Now, the walls are 11 feet thick, and the finished fort contains 25 million bricks. The lower walls were constructed from a local brick called Savannah Gray, and then the upper walls and archways were constructed out of stronger red bricks brought down from Maryland and northern Virginia. At its completion, Fort Pulaski was considered impenetrable due to its incredibly thick walls and isolated island location. 
The fort was equipped with heavy bombardment cannons that could defend against invaders from the water. Only very large land artillery at the time could hope to break the 11-foot brick walls. But the nearest land to the island was about, was beyond the half-mile range that such smooth-barrel artillery weapons could fire. Our old buddy Robert E. Lee even remarked that one, quote, might as well bombard the Rocky Mountains as Fort Pulaski. They kind of feel like Fort Pulaski. I feel like a Titanic vibe. Yeah. Where it's like, it's impenetrable. Just kidding. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> So between its completion in 1847 and the beginning of the American Civil War, Fort Pulaski was pretty mellow in terms of activity. It was only really maintained by two caretakers. So just two soldiers hanging out at the fort. Yeah. And if they needed help, they could call in backup from Savannah. That all changed when the Civil War began. By early 1861, Confederate troops secured and garrisoned at the fort and nearby Tynebee Island. By the end of 1861, the Confederates left Timebee Island behind. They basically considered that island too isolated and too exposed to warrant further fortification, and they figured it would be way better to take all of those troops and consolidate their force at Pulaski. Well, this was probably a mistake, because it allowed the Union Army to land on Timebee Island and construct their own defensive batteries. Uh Uh-oh. Now, keep in mind, they're like, it's fine. The Union can totally try to, like, set cannons up there, but they're not going to be able to reach us because we're too far away. Yeah. By the spring of 1862, Union forces under the command of Captain Quincy Adams Gilmore installed 36 artillery cannons that featured the latest technology. Oh. Rifled barrels. Oh, well. That's going to... Yeah. I feel like you know a little bit about the uh, history of artillery, Eden. But for those who don't, uh, during the Civil War, smooth barrel cannons were primarily in use, and these cannons would fire cannonballs. Because they were round and had a smooth barrel, it could only reach about half a mile. Now, these new rifle barrel cannons were essentially designed to have the internal barrel had spiral grooves that resulted in the ability to fire cone-shaped projectiles that would spin once they left the cannon's muzzle. It resulted in a faster and stronger projectile that had a range up to five miles kind of like throwing a football exactly now captain gilmore was an enthusiast behind these rifled barreled cannons they'd never really been deployed widely in the field this is the first time they were really deployed he himself was a trained civil engineer so he completely understood the physics behind this and figured that with these cannons on tybee island he could absolutely breach fort pulaski so he does the gentlemanly thing and he contacts the Confederate commander of the fort and asks him to surrender to prevent the unnecessary loss of life that a bombardment could cause. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Confederate commander, Colonel Charles H. Olmsted, refuses, and Captain Gilmer spends the next two days firing his rifle barrel cannons at the fort. Next two days? Next two days. Wow. (laughs) He's just like, all right, boys, light him up. Yeah. After 30 hours... The artillery bombardment punches a huge hole in the wall of the fort, and it exposes one of the fort's powder magazines to additional shell fire. Colonel Olmsted, realizing how incredibly dangerous this is, as one stray projectile could essentially explode the whole fort and kill everyone inside, begrudgingly surrenders the fort to Union control. Later in his memoirs, Olmsted said that that decision haunted him for the rest of his life. Well, yeah, I assume it would. (laughs) Initially, 600 Union soldiers were stationed at the fort, 
But as the war continued, it became apparent that the Confederacy would not be able to retake Fort Pulaski. So they reduced the garrison to 250 soldiers. The fort was used then to house prisoners of war, including a group of Confederate officers known as the, quote, Immortal 600. Have you heard of those? I have not. But this is very much like Peapatch Island. It is. Actually, some of the Immortal 600 did end up at Peapatch Island at Fort Delaware eventually. Wow, okay. So these men were essentially Confederate officers who were captured as part of retaliation for a couple other incidents of mistreatment of uh, prisoners of war. And one general in particular captured a whole bunch of them and wanted to use them for prisoner exchanges. But at that point in the war, Ulysses S. Grant decided no more prisoner exchanges. We're not making any progress. We're just going to keep these men as prisoners. Okay, that's kind of, you know, I guess normal, but still. Uh, the tricky thing about these men and the reason that they're, they've are they gone down in the collective memory of the South is because they refused to renounce their allegiance to the Confederacy and take the oath of allegiance to the United States. So they are kind of seen as uh, paragons of loyalty. Okay. Now, while these men were housed at Fort Pulaski, they ended up being victims of retaliation after news came to light about the horrible condition at Confederate-controlled war prisons like Andersonville. Mm-hmm. So they were crowded into the fort's cold, damp casements, which are basically these empty rooms that they used to store artillery yeah. in. And they were only given, quote, retaliation rations. These retaliation rations consisted of 10 ounces of moldy cornmeal and half a pint of sour onion pickles to eat. Ew. Super gross. That sounds horrible. And definitely not enough for a grown man to sustain. I might prefer the rat calls. Well, the starving men did occasionally catch rats and sometimes stray cats to survive. Stray cats? Stray cats. Oh. Yeah. Pretty rough. Well, I mean, in other parts of the world, that's not weird. But here it's weird. Yeah. A little weird. At least 45 men died from starvation or disease before the group was transferred to Fort Delaware two months later, where they, again, faced awful conditions. Yeah. After the war, Fort Pulaski continued to house military prisoners, uh, including some leaders of the Confederacy, like the Confederate Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of War, and the Assistant Secretary of War. Some high-profile folks. Yeah. Between 1869 and 1872, New powder magazines were added to the rear of the fort, and gun positions were enlarged for newer, heavier artillery. However, by the early 20th century, the fort was virtually abandoned and in major disrepair. Okay. In 1924, Fort Pulaski was declared a national monument. And by 1933, the National Park Service had stepped in to take care of the land and repair the fort. The fort opened to the public briefly before the U.S. Navy took control of the fort during World War II. So basically the Navy came in and used it as like a base of operations. Yeah. Now, after the war, ownership of the fort returned to the National Park Service, which has maintained the fort and opened it to the public ever since. Okay. Uh, When you visit the fort today, it's pretty cool. You can still see the pockmarks in the wall that were purposely not repaired after Captain Gilmore's bombardment. Yeah. Uh, you can walk through the casements, even going out to the newer powder magazines, which are these underground magazines. Oh, cool. Um, some sources say that... I've read some underground magazines <laughs> in my day. <laughs> um, some sources say that these new magazines were actually built over the area that they used as a mass grave for people who died at the fort. Too. Oh, wow. Okay. Mass graves are fun. Always. Never result in hauntings. Never. Uh, many visitors 
to the fort have had paranormal encounters. Surprise. Well, yeah, I'm not shocked at all. (laughs) (laughs) So they've experienced cold spots, chills, strange noises, unaccounted for footsteps, that sort of things. However, there are definitely some hot spots for activity within the fort. The first is, of course, the casements. This is where the prisons of war were housed. People who have ventured into these cold, damp chambers describe a heaviness that permeates the air. They've reported feeling despair, fear, and even get nauseous while they're inside the casements. Photos that have been taken in the casements have captured orbs and even some misty human-shaped figures. Oh, great. Yeah, it's super spooky. Looking at some of the photos, it almost looks like, oh, that's mold on the wall. And then you see another photo of that same room and you realize there's no mold in that wall. Oh, it's some kind of weird... Filmy. Yeah. Yeah. Very spooky. Similar photos have been captured in another hot spot. And this is a stairwell that leads to the upper portion of the fort. Uh, when the fort was operational, it was used to carry the wounded from the top tier of the fort down to a former infirmary area. Witnesses have heard crying and shrieking in the stairwell. And they've seen full-bodied apparitions of soldiers rushing up the stairs to rejoin a long-finished battle. Huh. Okay. So you'd be like walking on the stairs and some guy will rush past you and you think, maybe it's a reenactor. <laughs> yeah, it's not, not a reenactor. So no. He's just really into his job. Yeah, for sure. Now, because the fort was in both Confederate and Union hands during the war, people have seen apparitions of both Confederate and Union soldiers at the fort. Some investigators surmise this could be regret that keeps these spirits coming back to the fort. Mm -hmm. The regret of Confederate soldiers who are disgraced by surrendering the fort. The regret of Union soldiers who are remorseful for their treatment of prisoners. Overall, they seem to be sad spirits. If they're not just, um, what do you call it? The repeating the same behavior? Residual haunting. Uh, There's several EVP recordings you can find online that are also very spooky. They're usually in the casements. And I've seen a couple where investigators are just asking, are you a soldier? And they'll get things on their their voice box. They'll say yes or no. Okay. Are you free to leave? Some of them will say no. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's very, very spooky. So I wonder if like those like the prisoners and they're just still in captivity. Mm -hmm. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. I don't like that. Now, I did find a super well-documented documented paranormal event that happened at Fort Pulaski and it was kind of the impetus for me to cover this fort comes from a group of civil war reenactors who were tapped to be extras during the filming of the 1989 film glory. Oh, okay. So Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington. Um, For those who haven't seen the film, it's essentially about a white officer who leads a brigade of black infantrymen for the union army. On their way to the filming location, the reenactors decide, you know, it'd be cool. Let's stop off at this fort that's nearby. They happen to be in their Confederate costumes. Mm-hmm. And while they were touring the fort, they saw a young man also in the uniform of a Confederate lieutenant. Uh-oh. <laughs> they assume he's another reenactor and they wave him over and give him friendly nods. This agitates the young man who commands them to stop. He then berates them for failing to correctly salute a higher ranking officer. Uh course one other reenactor is like who does this guy think he is we're not even on set yet what the heck really method wow yeah the young man responds angrily that he didn't know what they're talking about and that this foolish insolence will be not be tolerated (laughs) then he says nothing can be done now because there's an impending yankee attack and the guys are all kind of like okay then he forcefully orders them to stand at attention 
this guy was so vehement and insistent that they all kind of were like, uh, 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 I'll all do right, it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so all the reenactors line up. And then the young men start shouting, about face. And so the guys turn. They wait a few moments to see what he's going to say next, but no order ever comes. Huh. They turn around and the young man has disappeared. The group searches the fort for the young lieutenant, but they never find him. They also didn't catch up with him or see anybody who resembled him when they ended up on the film set later that day. Oh, wow. That is crazy. Uh, some of the reenactors who were there pondered that if they if that wasn't a ghost, they don't know what was. Yeah, right. Wow. Uh, I personally, reading reading over that encounter, made me wonder if it was actually the ghost of Colonel Olmstead, who was, by uh, most accounts, like in his late 20s yeah. when he was commanding this entire fort. And since he had so many regrets about turning the fort over to the Union, I wouldn't be surprised if his spirit He's is still, still hanging wandering. out there. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, Eden, what do you think about Fort Pulaski on Cockspur Island? That was crazy, that last <laughs> bit. Right? I was like, I got to cover this. Oh, yeah. That's like the greatest thing ever. I liked the story a lot. It definitely reminded me of Peapatch Island. What is it with freaking having these... Giggle-worthy names. Oh, giggle-worthy <laughs> names too, but having these forts that are just always horrible conditions. I think it was... I was pondering that too, and I think part of it was how out of hand and vicious the American Civil War was. Probably, yeah. When I referenced earlier some of the activities that led to, the, to keeping prisoners of war... Um, there are some very well-noted incidents that at certain battles, both sides would use other prisoners of war as like human shields oh, yeah. mm -hmm. to prevent the invading army from actually taking action against them. And then, of course, you have, you know, the, the atrocities at certain prisons like oh. Andersonville is like notorious. Oh, yeah. But there were equally as notorious prisons on the Union side. I, th I think part of it is just you can barely feed your army. How are you going to feed all these prisoners of war? That's true. It just, it seems like, you know, wartime comes around and everybody's suddenly a dick, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I always find the Civil War interesting because it's like, it was a war amongst brothers. I'm like, God, sibling rivalry really is the worst. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> never meet her to anybody except your family. Like, God. So, my sources for this story were Wikipedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, GeorgiaEncyclopedia.org, NationalParkService.gov, LegendsOfAmerica.com, mostlyghosts.com, militaryghosts.com, and a great book called Civil War Ghosts by Daniel Cohen. Okay. That is a very well-rounded amount of sources. I like it. Coxpur. Coxpur. The next time I need to give something a name, like in a video game, mm. Coxpur. It's going to do, yeah. I, of course, I, it's going to be called Coxpur. Um, the one time I was playing, oh, what was it? It was um, Oblivion, Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Mm -hmm. And you can custom class, like you can create like whatever class you want, and then you get to name it, and then it asks you, do you really want to be a whatever name you gave it? <laughs> so I was like, well, we're going to have some fun at these names now. Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. So I guess that wraps up Georgia Part 1. That it does. Next week we'll be back. I'll have a true crime story for you. Yes. And I will have a terrifyingly haunting story for you, possibly. I don't know. I haven't found it yet. I know. Big promises, Eden. I know. <laughs> I guess until then, gang, if you have any feedback about today's stories or you just want to reach out and say, hey, uh, you can do that at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com via email. You can visit our website at 
rootsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Freshly updated. Yes. You can also stop by our social media sites. We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd also like to thank Yoxbox Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our amazing intro and outro music. All right. I guess until next time, Roadsters. Creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.